Welcome to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast, a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, an integrative practice committed to expanding access to holistic root cause medicine to the global community. Today, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Rosie Scheinberg, Dr. Scheinberg is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Her areas of clinical expertise include anesthesiology, cardiothoracic anesthesiology, medical acupuncture, and integrative medicine. Dr. Scheinberg serves as the director of integrative medicine for the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins and has been board certified in integrative medicine since 2014. Join us for a conversation today about optimizing perioperative care, the care before, during, and after surgery. Surgery doesn't have to be scary. There are things you can do to improve your recovery times, improve clinical outcomes, and overall improve your experience with surgery. If you or someone you love is undergoing surgery in the future, this episode is for you. Uh, welcome, Dr. Scheinberg, to the podcast. So great for you to be here today. Dr. Wong, thank you so much. Pleasure is mine. It's great to see you again. Yes, you too, Rosie. And um, I think we we met uh, just for the listeners and um, part from uh, our time at the University of Arizona Integrative Medicine Fellowship, where um, we just had a great time there. You know, it's mostly a, uh, a distance learning fellowship, but there were three, we- three weeks of residential uh, fellowship. So... Uh, we can talk about that in, in a minute, but um, first of all, just for all the listeners here, Dr. Scheinberg, what motivated you to um, pursue medicine? Oh, good question. So I think, you know, interestingly, so I became, um, I was very heavily into gymnastics and dance growing up. I was, you know, sort of at that pre-Olympic level and also, you know, very high level in ballet. And um in those pursuits, you really develop a natural interest in the body. It's the tool of your trade, um, high potential for injury and overuse injury. So there's a lot of contact with the medical community. So I think I always wanted to be involved in sort of health and wellness in some capacity, just because of my experience, um, you know, Mm -hmm. in dance and gymnastics growing up. And the medical system and the doctors and the practitioners you went to probably probably helped you out a lot to so that you're able to continue with dance and gymnastics. Is that right? It, that's right, Andy. It did. You know, growing up in in these areas, like I went to a doctor if I needed to go to a doctor, and then I also did other things to stay really at the top of my performance and you mm-hmm. know staying healthy and well. You know, nutrition was really important in being able to perform at the top. Sleep was important. We learned early on sort of stress reduction things to help us get through competitions and performances and the nerves through that. So it always made sense to me that. Um, there that you kind of dipped into both worlds of the health and wellness arena, you know, the kind of standard medical treatment as well as sort of more um, complete uh, wellness world, um, you know, yeah. to achieve whatever goals you had, you know, to kind of be at peak operating capacity. Yeah. And, and we're going to, I think this is going to connect to later with perioperative medicine here, but I have a question from, you know, with you growing up and doing dance and gymnastics is that did your coaches ever or maybe you found this yourself um, doing some sort of visualization before performances and, you know, practices even. 
Yeah. Yeah. I had an amazing gymnastics coach growing up. And what in, in the eighties, the Russians were the best in the world at gymnastics. Yeah. And so he learned Russian so he could translate their Russian training manuals and utilize some of their, you know, training techniques that they were using, like utilizing to create world-class athletes in oh, gymnastics nice. at the time. Yeah. And part of that was they did what they called at the time mental rehearsal. So they did use um, kind of visualization techniques and, you know, using perform, you know, kind of visualizing your performance and different components. And so I did, I learned that early on where I think it wasn't commonplace in athletic training like it is now. Right. And I think we, we all know this, you know, there's the functional MRI studies from Harvard that show that there's, you know, if you imagine playing the piano versus playing the piano, it lights up the same air of the brain. So you can use that and probably guide imagery visualization for performance, but also for, you know, before a surgery. And we know that you're an anesthesiologist at, at Johns Hopkins. Um, and um, so kind of just um, wanted to get more into that. How'd you get into anesthesia? And then how'd you get into more integrative medicine as well? Yeah, good question. So going through med school, I tried to keep an open mind. I sort of enjoyed everything that I did, all the different medicine subspecialties and, you know, along the yeah. way. And when I got to anesthesia, what I particularly liked was this combination of things. One was that it's all the, I love, so I was a biochemistry undergrad. So I love sort of the underlying thinking about like the mechanisms of how things work and anesthesia puts that into practice in real time so if i'm you know giving a drug for example it's going to go through a certain pathway and have a physiologic effect and i get to see that in real time i call, i've always called anesthesia medicine for the impatient and yes <laughs> i am a self-admitted impatient person i'm not good at waiting for things so i think in medicine you tend to have to wait for results where you prescribe a medicine and someone has to go out and fill the prescription and then actually take the medication and then come back in a few weeks and report how things are going. Well, anesthesia sort of does all of that physiology in a compressed time frame. So I enjoyed that aspect of it, the direct pharmacology aspect. I liked that it is, um, there's a lot, so it's a real good combination of thinking the you know kind of the medicine the machinations and the thinking about pathways and how to keep people safe and you know how to get through um, a surgery with the physiologic changes but also doing so we have a lot of hands-on procedure type things where I'm you know I can put bypass cannulas in the neck and you know a lot of big IV access I'm doing nerve blocks and epidurals as well as different airway management techniques so um, also procedure based so that part I enjoy as well. Um, the, one of the big roles that I enjoy in anesthesia is that, you know, a surgeon is kind of the, the hero of any patients, you know, when they have a surgical experience, they're the one, they remember their name and they look to, to really fix a problem that they have. And I feel like the anesthesiologist role is kind of the unsung hero role. I think there's a lot that people don't know about that happens while they're asleep under anesthesia. And there's a lot of, you know, stress and physiologic manipulation on the body that happens. And so I think our role is that really the protector role. I mean, if you, if I take away someone's ability to do all the life-sustaining things that one normally does for oneself, breathing, blood pressure regulation, temperature management. Yeah. If I were having surgery, I would certainly want someone I trusted to take over that role and be very diligent about protecting me while I couldn't protect myself. And so I love being in that role. 
certainly surgeons make you know do the surgery but anesthesiologists make that surgery possible and smooth you know almost like a a conductor but then you're playing the violins making everything smooth that's how i kind of see that's right it is a pure codependent you know team-based relationship absolutely one can't do this without the other (laughs) so it sounds like you love you know uh connecting also the 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 right and left brains you know together with the procedure base the analytical side the instant gratification is, is you know amazing uh with the instant results you see from you know administering a medication and seeing seeing that person you know i I think stabilize etc on you know heart rate blood pressure etc so so that's great and then how did you how did you find out about and get into integrative medicine and why did you decide to go through the uh dr weil fellowship that we both went through So I think it actually is almost a reverse thinking process. That's always the question. Well, how did you get into integrative medicine? But I think that's what led me into medicine in the first place. You know, going back to my days in dance and gymnastics, I knew I wanted to be in this health and wellness world. And so, in fact, before I was thinking about medical school, I was actually thinking about a pathway to become a naturopathic physician. Yeah. And um, which is a different training pathway, you still get, you know, sort of your doctor designation, but your tool set really becomes non-pharmacologic, non-surgical agents. So you Mm -hmm. really, your bread and butter is really thinking about how do lifestyle components, how do different botanicals and herbs and supplements help someone become well, stay well, deal with different pathologies. And then, you know, my thinking process was a certain subset of people in our country or in this world will will go to a naturopath. I thought maybe I could bring those ideas of underlying health and wellness to a broader population of people if I had the quote unquote credentials of a Western medical degree behind me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So ultimately that's actually what led me to go to medical school. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have a similar pathway too, just thinking about health and wellness from a very early age as well. And just knowing that's why I wanted to go to, you know, into the healthcare field um, to be of service, you know. For people and in a in a way that you know broadens access, but certainly um, I know that you know, and I'm I'm curious actually if you've um, you know at Hopkins at Hopkins have you also interfaced with lots of different other practitioners, naturopathic doctors, acupuncturists, specialists in the medical field because because you've worked with a lot of different specialists yourself, correct? That's right. At Hopkins, it's a very it's a it, you know in general it's a pretty conservative and historical institution. So within the Hopkins walls, I wouldn't say I've interacted with a lot of different type of practitioners, you know, in the kind of complementary world. It's one of the first uh, first medical schools, right? So, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it has a very rich and long tradition, right? Um, but very steeped in the Western medical world. So mm-hmm. I come into contact. What keeps me excited about being at Hopkins is there are amazing people who really, yeah. you know, their strongest desire is to do good in the world and help people and help patients. Absolutely. And they do that that by different innovations and yeah. research. Um, but, you know, in general, they think within kind of our structured um, uh, rhetoric of how we're taught in medical school to think. So I think it's amazing that you've pioneered integrative medicine and perioperative care in a holistic way at Hopkins. So let's talk about, let's kind of take a deep dive into, uh, into perioperative care here. First of all, what is perioperative care? 
what are some of the important considerations prior to surgery and things like that? Let's kind of start with some definitions for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. It's, you know, the perioperative period is it's a defined period that includes before the surgery period, the during the surgery period and the aftermath after the surgical period. And anesthesiologists nowadays, we used to be thought of as just the person that's going to be in the operating room taking care of you while you're asleep and then waking you up and getting you through the recovery room process. Now we're really taking ownership of that entire perioperative period. So we're physicians that not only specialize in caring for patients in the operating room, but we can really evaluate them before surgery and make sure whatever conditions, issues, medical comorbidities are happening before surgery, that we optimize that and that we make sure they're fully evaluated so that we can take the best and safest care of them during the surgical period. And then we also have specialists that take care of patients after surgery, whether that be in the ICU, so intensivists that specialize in ICU care and beyond. There are physicians now that specialize in pain from the anesthesia perspective. And so we take care of people after for the long term as they recover and you know help people wean off of opioids, for example, a very important part of of um, recovering now that we're in a day and age that there's a lot of awareness of opioids and the potential dangers they have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so um, what are some important considerations uh, prior to surgery? Uh, what kind of self-care is important, do you think, uh, prior to surgery, I would say, first? It's a great question. I think this is an area that is now being looked at in a more structured way more than ever. Previously, we just thought more about getting people through surgery and then helping them recover. But now we're expanding that view to what can we do ahead of time to optimize people so that their outcomes are even better. And so it's, it's a great question. And I think it's one of the right questions to be asking, especially if you have the luxury of time before surgery. There are some surgeries where it's just, it's emergent, it's immediate, and you only have maybe hours to days before surgery. Someone comes in with a new heart attack and they, it's determined they need heart bypass surgery. You don't have the luxury of preparing for three or four months versus if you're having something like an elective joint replacement. If you're having a knee or a hip replacement, you may have the luxury of let's get prepared and do what we need to do to optimize ourselves before we go into surgery, because we know clearly being healthier before surgery improves your outcomes. It improves your ability to um, smoothly get through the recovery process, avoid complications, get out of the hospital sooner, suffer less side effects of anesthesia, surgery, and recovery process. So some of those components are basic components that, in, that we would talk to anyone about, about a healthy lifestyle, right? Nutrition is always a huge foundation of what we talk about in the health and wellness world and in integrative medicine and functional medicine. You're not talking about a proper foundation of health if you're not talking about nutrition. Same thing for preparing for surgery. Some of the slight differences are we know that blood glucose control, so blood sugar control before surgery, has a major impact on surgery outcome, things like wound healing, things like um, risk of heart events after surgery. So paying attention to whole foods and low glycemic index type foods, super important in the, in the days and weeks before surgery. 
the range and the spectrum of all of the rainbow colors of fruits and vegetables, because that's where all of those phytonutrients and really important chemicals that help give your body building blocks before surgery come from. The other thing that's a little, that may be a little different before surgery is surgery is what's called a catabolic state, meaning your body is in the process of breaking down its components rather than building up its components. So when you sort of take your body and put it in that catabolic state, in order to recover and heal, your body needs to have, provide the building blocks for all your cells to start building up the tissue that got damaged during surgery. So we think of that, and one of those components is protein. So perhaps there is a little elevated need for protein in the weeks before surgery. So what, that what, you have um, enough to just to up. get a drill down on that, if you don't mind, Rosie, yeah. um, what, what, how many grams of protein would you say people would, would be recommended per body weight if they're trying to build that up? Yeah, so in general, what's recommended before surgery is about 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight okay. in the weeks before surgery. Okay, like cup three, four weeks, that kind of t time frame? Yeah. Got it. And then for the blood sugar, I'm wondering, do you ever recommend people go on continuous glucose monitors, either preoperatively or perioperatively to just understand where the glucose level is? Um, have people done that there? That's interesting. We haven't gotten to that level to see if that kind of um, eye toward really minutely controlling it makes a difference, but we do know that glycemic control in general is, um, is beneficial. So I can't say I've recommended anyone buy a continuous glucose monitor to monitor themselves through the perioperative period, but certainly putting into place the lifestyle behaviors that impact glycemic control, that's where I put the focus on. Yeah, the whole foods diet, rainbow, you know, healthy protein, right. fats, avoiding uh, simple sugars, avoiding simple yeah. sugars, right? And 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 just for all the listeners out there, I think yeah. most people may know this, but alcohol is also a simple sugar, so we we wouldn't want to really drink as uh, well as putting a load on your liver, right? And yes. your liver is part of what's going to metabolize all of the drugs that you're given perioperatively. So you want to give alcohol and caffeine a break. Remember caffeine too. Um, vasoconstricts blood vessels and you need good blood flow to all your body parts to help facilitate healing as well. Got it. So, so alcohol how, and coffee for the couple of weeks before. A couple of weeks before just totally eliminate ideally. Got it. That's ideal. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's been research um, throughout the last few decades on, on smoking cessation, right? Even, even if people are smokers and they, they want to quit, even I think quitting before surgery, um, you know, versus someone that, um, you know, was a non-smoker throughout their whole life. I think there's still some benefit, even if they have smoked a, a long time to quitting before surgery, correct? Yeah, that's right. Now, what people don't know and what I, you know, we know this from the literature, I would never discourage anyone from quitting smoking because I think and we know that wound healing um, and blood flow, you know, that's improved by quitting smoking, even in the short term is beneficial. However, I will, I will mention this just for our more sophisticated listeners. It takes about six to eight weeks for the lungs to sort of start clearing up some of the, all the carbon deposits that have been in there and the cilia, the little hairs that line all of the airways start to come to life when you quit smoking, they get sort of paralyzed when someone's smoking. So when they start to come to life, they start kind of moving up all of this junk that's been sort of lining the lungs. <clears throat> Detox. And people start yeah. coughing up more junk, sorry? Detox. 
Detox. Yeah. yeah. So as they start coming, so we know that if people have quit within that six to eight week period, slight increased chance of pulmonary complications, just because their lungs are doing what they're supposed to do and they're detoxing, they're bringing up that junk, but it's not the ideal time to be mobilizing and detoxing right, right before a surgery. So, so if they the know one. they're having some surgery or wanting to plan, let's say a total knee or something like that, but it could wait a couple months, maybe try to quit smoking and get that junk out. That's at least right. for, you know, those six, at least eight for eight weeks, weeks before, would be, you know, that's right. That would be sort of beneficial in the global picture. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What about other hormones like cortisol or thyroid or, or sex hormones? Is, is there any um, association between, say, like levels of cortisol, uh, levels of thyroid hormone, like TSH, things like that, um, as a pituitary hormone that that is, um, you know, measuring thyroid indirectly, and then sex hormones in terms of that you know about in terms of research in terms of affecting surgical outcomes. Great question, an interesting question. You know, we tend to think of the hormonal regulation, especially, you know, I don't know, I haven't seen a lot of research on like modulating sex hormones, especially around surgery. Yeah. Um, we definitely have different surgical populations that have high, low, you know, levels all the time, especially when we take care of pregnant women around surgery or people yeah. on steroid replacements. Yeah. But we don't have a lot of outcomes data, I would say, from modulating that because it's not a common thing you're going to modulate just to get a better outcome. Just to after. get a better outcome. Yep. TSH and thyroid um, can have, especially in the more extreme, really high or really low can have more perioperative implications than slightly higher, slightly low. Okay. Um, okay. The cortisol is interesting because that's, that gets into the whole question of the whole stress response, right? Because cortisol mm -hmm. is part of that stress response. And what we clearly know, and this is where we talk about, you know, the preoperative interventions of like guided imagery and things to help lower that stress response and the anxiety before surgery. But what we know about the, the stress response in the body is that there is a natural biphasic response. So there's two parts to this inflammatory response with surgeries. There's a big surge right after the surgical insult. So when a, a surgeon comes at you with a knife and they do damage to your tissue, mm -hmm. um, and and then that that response calms down and um, and then you know as things heal, as the the tissue starts to heal. Part of that is, you know, in, in the integrative world, we tend to think sort of more anti-inflammatory is better. However, in surgery, you still need that inflammatory surge to kick off the healing process. So we don't want to squelch yeah. it all together. Yeah. So we want sort of the natural rise of cortisol and, you know, all of the norepinephrines and epinephrines and cytokines and things, because that begins and that's part of the healing process. The problem comes when you have a very prolonged and exaggerated stress response that has been shown to impair and delay healing and being implicated in a lot of um, post-operative complications. So when I think about kind of cortisol and the stress response, it's like, let the body have its natural response afterwards. Don't completely squelch it. And then sometime in the recovery process, that's where you do want to reinstitute all of these anti-inflammatory interventions. So that reaction can come to its natural conclusion. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Rosie. So a lot of questions uh, just generated from that <laughs> based on your uh, amazing answers here. W one of the things is that, you know, that the surgeon's coming at the patient with the knife or, you know, obviously the there's a lot of vulnerability there. The patient's unconscious, they're in general anesthesia often, or at least LMA. But the idea is that, you know, that person's really leaving their body to the surgeon, right? And to the anesthesiologist. But um, what 
what role does trust and the relationship between the patient and the practitioner have to do with outcomes, you know, wound healing, decreased complications? Do, does that play a role and how, how can that be fostered, you know, in terms of yeah. strengthening that relationship? So important. And the longer I've been practicing medicine, this is such a particularly vulnerable time for patients when they're coming in to have surgery. Most of us in modern life and in our modern world, we have control over our daily activities and what happens to us. And we like that. We like control. Yes. And so when you come in to have surgery, you really have to shed all of that control and people are just doing things to you without your making those decisions. And it's very anxiety provoking and vulnerable. And that's again, why you, it's imperative that you feel trust in the, in the practitioners and providers taking care of you Mm -hmm. because you, your life literally is in other people's hands and it's their responsibility to get you safely through that. And that generates a lot of anxiety. You know, the, the stereotype of anesthesiologists is that we got into this business because we have no people skills. So I think (laughs) knowing you that that could not be farther from the truth, but uh, (laughs) I mean, it may be true in some instances, but I actually think the opposite that we have a shorter amount of time to really get to know our patients and, and build that trusting relationship in a small amount of time. Yeah. Because even though our relationship with the patient is short, we have, it's a very intense And um, like I said, a very vulnerable time for patients. So I always take time to acknowledge perhaps the anxiety and the uncertainty that patients may be feeling in, especially in the preoperative area. And I make sure that they know that all emotions are welcome because patients have a lot of emotions. And then in the preoperative area, because it's that moment right before this whole big black box that's going to be happening to them starts. And, um, and so, um, people have different feelings and different ways that uncertainty comes out mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yes. We can be present and, for all of that. And I believe, you know, as integrative medicine practitioners, we both believe obviously in the connection between mind, body, spirit, and how the body is really, even for something as vulnerable and invasive as surgery, the body's trying to heal itself post-operatively. Right. But even preoperatively, I feel like what's happening is the body's probably anticipating you know, that person's energetic body's anticipating there's something going to be happening and, you know, preparing that person, building that trust up, that relationship with the practitioners, with the system, with the hospital, et cetera, that can be really healing and pay dividends in the short and long-term, you know, post-op as well, you know. um, It, It really can. Having that lines of communication open with the surgical team, you know, we know that even just education, which means having a conversation about what to expect, what it's likely to be like, how you can prepare best for it. You know, even just if we think about it on its most basic level, that improves outcomes because patients are more mentally prepared. When we broaden that to the mind-body connection that you mentioned, I think mentally preparing for surgery is one of the biggest things that patients can do for themselves to help smooth out and help their own outcomes. Great. What specific recommendations do you have to mentally prepare for for surgery and I, I do want to touch on like music and guided imagery too you know that would be helpful to talk about because I know we've talked about that mm-hmm. before um, but what what what, are, what kind of mental strategies or kind of tips or tools or techniques have you found to be really helpful for patients in terms of preparing for surgery yeah 
I think some type of guided imagery, since we're not all pre-trained in how to do this, you know, I think the people who sort of have that mind-body connection, which is really the autonomic nervous system that controls the stress response and the relaxation response, that's what yes. we're talking about. Got it you know, like Tibetan monks and Buddhist monks who may spend a good portion of their day really turning inward and learning how to very finely control that autonomic nervous system. So for us who are not maybe as practiced in that, having a guided imagery, I think is, is a really good way to prepare. And there's several on the market out there now that have been developed that are preoperative sort of guided imagery preparation um, Which ones do you recommend uh, for listeners if, if they yeah, are? Yeah, so some that I really surgery? like, I use a lot Peggy Huddleston's Prepare for Surgery, Heal Faster. Okay. Um, Martin Rossman has another one that is Preparing for Surgery. Okay. And um, a third one by uh, Bella Ruth Napperstack mm -hmm. also has a preparation. So those three um, are, are very good, I think, in helping people. I think doing something is way better than not doing anything to yes. mentally And also it does give people back a little bit of that locus of control. Like they're doing something, even though they're about to go under anesthesia and, and you know, be a bit at the mercy of, of the, the surgery you know, in general. But uh, but that that's great. And what about music? I know you had mentioned before about listening to favorite music and kind of calming down the nervous system, balancing that ANS, like you said. What are your thoughts about listening to music? Um, I guess in the perioperative period, both pre and post as well. Yeah, there's actually a lot of data on, you know, studies looking at when people listen to different types of music. And I want to be clear because there's now emerging two types of music. One is called music medicine. And that's kind of what we think about when we think about you passively give someone music to listen to music, okay. either they like or they resonate with. There's, you know, some some data to that whole the Mozart effect where certain beats like 60 beats a minute, which is closer to the heartbeat may help calm that autonomic nervous system. So listening to something like that versus um, so that's one category, passive listening, music, medicine. The other category is what's called now music therapy. So there this is an interactive um, session with a therapist where then you more actively think about music and maybe create it or um, listen to something that in very particular ways. So when we think about perioperative, the most, the, what's been studied most because it's most implementable is that music medicine. And most studies have found a favorable outcome on using medicine to help calm anxiety, even to help pain scores and side effects after surgery. So and I, think, I think people would agree, right? Most people feel good when they listen to music they enjoy or soothing music. And so I think it makes sense. And it's something that most of us can have on hand nowadays, right? Some earphones or, you know, earbuds and um, a cell phone. Yeah. So it's time for a humorous and potentially semi-controversial question, but, um, do you recommend that the uh, patient uh, uh, choose the the uh, music medicine or even the or the anesthesiologist versus the surgeon? I'm curious about about that. Oh, you know, in the, in in the, the OR, room? yeah, in the OR, right? Like, what what if it <laughs> what if it actually uh, you know influences right? Three four hour surgery, six hour surgery. Maybe the patient should be part of that, and just just. Uh, not sure if that would. Well, upend you know, all those I think things. I think that's an easy answer when we think about the patient because there's an easy way to isolate the patient from the rest of the operating room because I think if they're just listening to the general talk in the room plus music, I think that's less 
less ideal perhaps for their subconscious that may be listening to kind of the garbage conversations we may be having. They don't need to hear they don't sort of what that. we're talking about Got in the it. operating room. Yep. Yep. But if you can isolate them and with earbuds, headphones, something like that to listen to something more ideal, continuation of the guided imagery that they had been practicing ahead of time or some type of music in the operating room, I think that would be far superior. Uh, is that happening at Hopkins now? I, d I didn't realize that. Yeah. It's not, um, it, it's not, but it is, okay. I think would be very beneficial. I used to yeah. have patients just bring their own devices with their music into the operating room. And um, uh, because of an unfortunate event where someone was trying to audio record on their device in the operating room, oh, we now yeah. have, you know, policies designed Again, um, not, uh, you know, not, against yeah. that kind of Got violation. It. Of, of privacy yeah. so um so until we can use more mp3 players or things that are not recordable i think yeah. that would sort of be a more ideal solution but yeah, maybe something owned by the hospital that could just be kind of utilized i think so i think that would it. be you know the hospital liability would find that yep. superior <laughs> but that, that i think the sense. benefit yeah. of music is undeniable absolutely yeah and it, it you know we know that we're really we're, we we kind of think about biology in terms of, you know, we are a collection of cells and organs and we have different, you know, everything kind of communicates together. But then on one level, on an energetic level, we're also vibrational frequencies, right? And so the music is speaking to that. And if we can have that aligned with our own cellular frequencies through the music that we play, I, I can say that that would you know, likely be, you know, healing for the patient uh, periodically. That's right. Too. Although there hasn't been randomized double-blind controlled trials yeah. on that, I, yeah. I, I agree. We know there's this phenomenon of entrainment where you can sort of, you know, your energetics can align with other energetics. So why don't we bring the best, most positive energetics that we can to help our body facilitate its own natural healing process. That's yes. what this is all about. That's awesome. And then I know you're a medical acupuncturist as well, correct? That's right. And yeah. um, curious if you. I'm trying to follow in your footsteps, Andy. You know, to, to have well, all the wonderful. Well, I should give a shout out to my sister tools. Michelle, who uh, introduced me to medical acupuncture as well. But yeah, we're and um, actually even for functional medicine, uh, Dr. Joffrey, who's I believe now in Florida, she introduced me to functional. So it's all about kind of communicating, you know, networking and um, really understanding, you know, from our, our friends and family. Um, this is often who guide, leads the way. So definitely you, you as well. You know, I've certainly looked up to you and what you've done here in the academic setting. Um, but I would say uh, I would say one other question I have about about sort of the perioperative um, uh, environment and, and setting and integrative modalities is, is for acupuncture. What is the role of acupuncture in perioperative care, you know, reducing perioperative pain, de decreasing, uh, decreasing complications and increasing, um, I guess, the uh, effectiveness of recovery? I think acupuncture is one of those most exciting and forward thinking things that we can do for a perioperative patient because the data is so favorable with reducing the need for post-operative opioids, so lowering pain scores, preventing side effects like nausea and vomiting after surgery, which is the most common side effect after general anesthesia by far. Mm -hmm. It can, it's shown it can help with some of the common post-op complications like um, faster time to bowel and bladder function. That's so huge. ileus is a huge yeah. morbidity afterwards. Um, urinary retention where just people can't get that urinary stream going. Again, a huge issue. And it's also beneficial in preoperative anxiety too. 
one of my favorite stories is my first, right after I was just credentialed in medical acupuncture, I had a patient reach out to me, a young woman who was traveling to Hopkins um, with a, um, a, a shunt in her brain. So to help drain some excess fluid in her brain, a VP shunt that she had, and she would get periodic um, um, uh, uh, revisions of this. She said, no matter what drugs and whatever we did to help her after surgery, she had nausea and vomiting for three days straight every time she had surgery. And she said, it was so miserable. Was there anything I could do to help? And I was brand new. And I said, you know what? Let's try. So I did some in the preoperative area just for about the, for the 20 minutes before surgery um, while she was you know, waiting for her surgery to happen. I did some acupuncture ahead of time. And... Um, no nausea and vomiting in the recovery room. She was nice. so thrilled. That's so and, great. And we repeated that. She had to. She's come back since um, and mm -hmm. had another one. And she goes, "Oh, please! I hope you're there. Can you do it again?" And I did. And no nausea and vomiting. So it's really exciting to have just a tool that you can use in real time, simple yeah. that can add so much value for a patient. I, I love I love doing acupuncture in, in the moment. Not not that I do it every day, but as a primary care physician, you know, in the moment, if I need to do it for something like IT band or back pain or, or even like that nausea, anxiety picture, using four gates or something like that, you know, it can be really helpful. So that's great. You're using it in the hospital. That's amazing. Yeah, and I want to advocate, you know, so one of the biggest barriers to implementing this, because then you might ask, well, if the data is so good and it's so useful, why aren't we just adding it to our hospitals, especially in the day and age of the opioid crisis? Yeah. The biggest limitation is that there's no way, again, this all comes back down to reimbursement for acupuncturists, licensed acupuncturists to be reimbursed in a hospital setting. So there's no way for someone to hire an acupuncturist just to be in the preoperative area and the postoperative area of doing these amazing, you know, treatments for patients. So that becomes a limiting barrier. And so, you know, perhaps it's incumbent upon physicians to get the training themselves so they can add it in their practice. Yeah. Is there a movement? Do you know if there's a movement towards that? Is anyone kind of advocating for licensed acupuncturists to go into hospital settings to be uh treating or is that is that is there resistance there as well yeah so i think you know there's there's desire out there i haven't seen an organized push because this is you know all in the bigger spectrum of reimbursement and how mm -hmm. we're reimbursed and for what we're reimbursed right so as hospitals move toward more bundled payments i think this is more and more challenging to advocate for individual services even Got so it. it's a challenging environment to advocate for this type of individual service. But I yeah. think in the long run, you know, pr proving its cost benefit and it's, right. um, you know, in less drugs, less stay in the recovery room um, will will ultimately be its successful um, yeah. factor. So, in so probably increasing clinical outcomes, reducing costs and maybe yeah. maybe starting with physicians and medical practitioners. But then, you know, potentially licensed acupuncturists down the line, I think would be great. Yeah. To, to have them in the hospital too, um, if they're interested in that. Um, and do you have any recommended supplements pre or post surgery? Because I know I know a lot of people ask about that. Um, are there any supplements we need to stop before surgery? You know, we we talk talk about that too. Yeah, it's a really big area, and it's a there's a lot of questions about that because standard. If you ask sort of any standard, you know, preoperative clinic surgeon, they're going to say you stop everything a couple of weeks before surgery, right? Now, there are some things I think we need to think about in terms of I'll start with what shouldn't we be on at first. So some things that I think about, I think about these in kind of three categories that could 
inter interact with the anesthetic part of this that make me a little concerned. One of these is botanicals, herbs, supplements that impact coagulation, right? Blood thinning things. So, and we have a lot of those, right? Because what makes them, what makes platelets and things less sticky is good for the heart. So we have a lot of things that we take because it's got good cardiovascular benefit, but in a surgical situation, um, it could be that it might make you bleed more. And we worry about that. Mm -hmm. So things like, um, you know, vitamin E, high dose fish oils, um, you know, all we call these the G ones. So there's garlic, ginger, ginkgo, green tea, you know, those kinds of things have those good heart healthy properties, but they also tend to make you bleed. And, and cur curcumin, curcumin too. Yeah. Curcumin too. Yeah. I don't particularly worry about them individually, but what I do worry about is when you start adding them up, plus maybe someone's on aspirin, or we have a lot of people on different types of blood thinning medicines, mm -hmm, right. not only kind of the classic Coumadin warfarin, but we have a lot of direct thrombin inhibitors. And, you know, mm -hmm. so more and yeah. more of the population is on those. So when you start yeah. adding those up, then maybe we have a, a true increased risk. Kind of, of so seven down. days before stop them, would you say, or uh, how, how many days? Before? You know, kind of the, the most a, you know, the most conservative is two weeks. I think okay. seven to 10 days is probably, you know, the minimum amount you should stop these just to make sure the ha you have enough half-lives half and, and the okay. is out of your system. Okay. Yeah. So that was, the next, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was going to say the next category I worry about is kind of the ones that stimulate that stress response, the sympathomimetics, because surgery itself is a stress test on your body. So we don't want to add drugs that are stimulating that sympath, symp you know, symp sympathetic system, like kind of revving up the system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So panix ginseng, maybe something that people don't think about, um, okay. licorice, uh, not the deglycerizinated kind like DGL, but you know, um, just traditional licorice and ephedra, which is ma huang. So those are a few that I just keep in the back of my mind as things that I think probably don't need to be on someone's plate as an additional stress on the system. Got it. And then lastly, the sedative ones. I think that's an interesting category because I actually think we should be using them to our advantage. But you know, when you have a practitioner who's not aware of those and what they are and, and, and how they might interact with what the sedatives they're gonna give them, you can get too, too much of an effect. Um, so valerian and kava kava and St. John's wort and passion flower, those things have sedative which are great. I think they're relaxing effects and they can help people with some of that anxiety, especially beforehand. But at this point, since I don't think we have enough awareness of, um, you know, botanicals, what they are and what they do, we have to be very cautious about people being and, on and those. And then there is also the cytochrome P450 drug interactions too. And yeah. some of them probably do have an effect with anesthesia and cardiac drugs, I would imagine. They do. You know, I think there's only so many enzyme pathways in the body. And so there's going to be a lot of overlap. Um, in what uses what enzyme pathways, the cytochrome P450 system being among the most well-utilized pathways that we have. So I think there's a lot of concerns that if we truly drill down are probably more theoretical than an actual patient harm. But in being conservative, we do yep. want to think about those and be With cautious. With something major like surgery, that, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you about post-surgery. So like, when is it, when do you feel like it's safe in your opinion, for people to restart some of these supplements, uh, whether they're more uh, blood thinning, botanicals, vitamins, or sympathomimetics or, or sedatives, you know, I know it probably depends on each case and how they're doing too, but curious. Yeah. About that. So, so, you know, things like 
probiotics, I think should be started pretty quickly once you're starting to take pretty immediately. Like most people get antibiotics, right? A lot of people get antibiotics. That's correct. Almost every surgery um, comes with at least a dose or 24 hours of antibiotics. So yeah, yeah. so we know there's huge alterations in the gut and the microbiome that happen because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how how long do you think people should take uh, probiotics? And again, this is probably an individualized approach, but you know, post having any sort of antibiotics, whether it's an oral or an IV antibiotic. Yeah, I, I, that's a hard question. And again, we don't have great randomized controlled trial to know when does the microbiome sort of repopulate and get back to normal. I think of the prebiotic as a placeholder. It's a stopgap toward a you know toward quickly repopulating your gut with some beneficial bacteria while you get your nutrition back on board, which is really your baseline of keeping your microbiome healthy and diverse and happy. So. I think at least a month to six weeks, maybe after surgery. Although that is, you know, I'm just sort of extrapolating based on- I, I agree with that. I, I do think there's certain harder antibiotics like the fluoroquinolones that you may need even longer, you know, based on some of the data that might be out there as much as six months. So it, it's really, mm-hmm. really, it's a lot that, you know, is one dose gonna do that? Who knows? But these antibiotics are pretty strong, you know, so it is, it is possible. and. This gives me another excuse to give a shout out to a Baltimore-based sauerkraut company called Hex Ferments. That is really great. So um, they they're a good uh, you know sauerkraut would be something to help with as a prebiotic to help get a absolutely. I love it. I have it in my fridge and uh, yeah. You, you have the Hex Ferments as well, or I haven't tried that one. I think no, I yeah, haven't. So but I'll look for it it's next in, um, It's either in Telson or Baltimore. You gotta, oh, okay. gotta, it's H E X Ferments. I'm gonna um, look for that. I love sauerkraut. Yes, yes, and they have a turmeric one too. Although, although I think food-based, you know, you could people could have like turmeric, and they could eat fish and those type of things before surgery, right? It's not like it's if, if it's not a supplement if you're eating like a food or spice, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And and when I talked about garlic and get, you can absolutely have those spices in food and in okay. food form. Don't hesitate to do that before surgery. And that would help for an anti-inflammatory benefit to to have those absolutely. in a way, which might help too. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Scheinberg, Rosie, for being on the podcast. Uh, We have a few fun closing questions here, um, which um, I believe, I think you said, but I I may be mistaken that um, are you an early morning person or not? But either way, do you have a a morning routine? And if so, would you mind sharing that with us? Oh, gosh. Well, by necessity, I'm an early morning person (laughs) because my job so yes. we start the cardiac. So cardiac uh, surgery, which is my subspecialty, starts 45 minutes other than sooner than regular surgery. So we're in the operating room at 6:45 every morning. Those are long surgeries, yeah. Yeah, they tend to be, you know, at least five to seven five hours to seven of surgery. Hour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so to get a couple in throughout the day, yeah, we don't want to be here forever. So we try and get an early start to those. So um, I'm up at about 4:30. Okay. I don't have a very exciting morning routine. I've since I've started doing intermittent fasting, I don't even make breakfast in the morning. Um, but uh, yeah, morning for me is just about basics. What I do when I first get to to work is I do my heart rate variability for five minutes. I do my my heart math, um, yes, you know, heart rate variability. Math. So the first thing I do when I get to work before I change into my scrubs for the day is I'll sit down and I'll open my app and put my little ear clip on and do five minutes of breathing. So at least nice. I start the day by activating my parasympathetic system and lowering my stress response before the day might, might happen to raise my stress response. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's a great idea yeah especially before surgery are you doing coffee with the intermittent fasting or is it more just like water and things yeah so it's funny i was actually never a coffee drinker um but i was always a breakfast person so when i started doing intermittent fasting which is tough right because we don't have exact data on you know what we should do there's some data that maybe we should do it before surgery the prolon you know fasting mimicking diet maybe you should do that in the month before surgery to help your autophagy right before surgery like so a that's five day like a five days of the prolon like one like a five, one, five day of the prolon that's right like, like a month before surgery, there's some suggestion that that could be beneficial in helping prepare the body. I guess that makes sense. You're cleaning out the system a bit, preparing, cleaning house a bit before surgery. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. You know, just like vitamin D, like make sure your vitamin D levels are optimized before surgery, you know, little things like that. What, what do you like the D levels to be? Cause I know that would be a question. Um, I know. People. So I just, I don't like them to be bottom of normal. You know, when I, when I think about kind of the functional medicine view, a lot of talk is kind of 50 to 80 in that range. So I at least like them in the mid normal range at, at a very minimum. Yeah. 40, 50, something like that. That's right. Yeah. We know that's where optimized immune function happens. Right. Right. I mean, there is this some evidence from basic science, at least that vitamin D decreases interleukin six. So in that way, I, I suppose a mid level would be nice because then you're not having too much, but then you're not, you're probably not totally blocking it either. Um, so it's, it's theoretical at this point. We don't really know, but I, I guess we could say that, you know, safely that, um, we, or is there, is there research on low vitamin D? Like, frankly, like, you know, vitamin D less than 20, let's say, is that associated with worse outcomes? Is there, is there any yeah, research there is. on that? Yeah, there is. It's associated there is. with worse post-operative infections and in general, yeah. Okay. Outcomes. So, so that, yeah. that would be certainly be something. And then, yeah. um, what book or podcast are you enjoying the most right now? Ooh, well, this heralds back to my, I think, a childlike nature, what, what I got back into. <laughs> and I'm, I'm re-listening to, I tend to do audiobooks because I can then multitask. That makes me happy. You know, when I'm doing my Saturday morning cleaning routine or laundry, I get to listen along. Oh, nice. um, I re-engage with the Harry Potter books. So oh, nice. I'm, yeah. Um, what, what, which book are you on now? There's like seven, right? I think. I, I, yeah, there's seven. I actually am on book seven right book now. Book seven. All right. The climax. Yeah. That's great. I know. The climax. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're books that are amazing. They keep on reading them over and over, you know? Yeah. There's, there's so fun. many good things out there, though. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, to choose. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a book wow. that I just got from the library. Oh, this is random. But um, mm -hmm. if you ever watched that movie called uh, A Man Called Ove, and then there's this um, author named Frederick Backman, who I think is from Sweden. It's, it's really good. Um, he wrote a book called Anxious People. So it, it actually is. And it's yeah, it's an yeah. interesting book. So um, if you're interested yeah. in, in more books like that, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And then what do you do every day to cultivate joy? So maybe like after you get out of the OR, you know, and those type of things. Mm, that is such a good question. What do I do every day to cultivate joy? Um, you know, uh, I can say this is an acute, so this is more right now. When I come home, I, I love um, different times of the year, different things are blooming in my garden. Nice. So when I just get home and I get to see kind of like the mums right now, right? It's fall uh -huh. and the mums are starting to bloom. And yeah. um, I had just planted um, a couple of plants of them. So every day I come home and I'll just stand there and it's, you know, it almost becomes a family event. Like I'm standing there and my husband comes over. What are you looking at? I'm looking at the mums. And so <laughs> we all stand and enjoy because it's just such a beautiful pop of color, you know, when the summer had kind of made everything just green. So now I've got this pop of color again and I just enjoy um, 
some of the fruits of the, the hard work of all the plantings I've done around my house. So just coming home and seeing that actually makes me um, internally smile. Absolutely. Nature brings us joy for sure. We're part yeah. of that. So thank you so much again, Rosie, Dr. Scheinberg, for coming on today. Um, and how can listeners learn more about you and and potentially work with you? I guess, are you doing like more integrative consults now? Or are you doing only for like preoperatively or kind of what's going on there? Yeah, no. So I, um, I am open to integrative medicine consults. Um, I do them, most of them in the context of cancer patients. So I'm, I'm working with the metastatic breast cancer clinic at Johns Hopkins. Okay. Um, but, but I am open to having sort of, you know, a, a, a diverse population. I've worked with people in chronic pain. I've mm-hmm. worked with some patients, um, before and after surgery, some people who've had traumatic events around anesthetic experiences, particularly okay, as so well. That be really helpful. How do people get in contact with you then to work with you? Because I know um, the the email address is heal at Hopkins H E A L A T mm-hmm. Hopkins H O P K I N S at J H M I dot E D U Johns okay. Hopkins Medical Institute dot E D U. Yeah. Um, so heal A T Hopkins at J H M I dot E D U. You got it. Got it. And is that going to a main box or is that going to you or? Both. It goes oh, really? to a main okay. box, but it's something that I regularly check myself. That you check as well. Yeah. Okay. The All other right. thing that I offer um, for, is, you know, mostly for our Hopkins patients is I do offer for free Peggy Huddleston's um, preoperative workshop. Okay. So I do Peggy Huddleston's, you know, prepare for surgery workshop, which I think can be really helpful for people. So um, if, if anybody happens to be having surgery at Hopkins, um, you can Google that um, okay. mind body and my name and it'll come up the, the link. But you can also email the email, the, the email address to find out more information. How, how long is the workshop? Uh, is it like a it's one, one hour and one I hour. do it remotely by phone? Okay. I think her program works best if you at least have a week to 10 days before surgery. Okay. Um, to, to do the preparation work. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know we have likely uh, our listeners, I'm, I'm sure, you know, since Hopkins, there's a lot of different hospitals now, part of Hopkins. So, you know, and, and I guess in general, it's it's great that, you know, we've talked about this today because people are having surgeries even during the pandemic. You know, there have been a lot of, um, you know, need for both elective and emergent surgery. So thank you so much for the work you are doing in the integrative space here, academic space uh, with perioperative medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Scheinberg, for being on again. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you for hosting this amazing podcast. So um, yeah, all of your listeners have an opportunity to hear some of your amazing pearls of wisdom that you've <laughs> garnered from all of your training. So yes, thank you for all the work you're doing for your patients. Thank you so much, Rosie. All right. Good to see you and um, talk soon. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.